0: Conversation and contrasts is what struck me when I was talking to my colleague and fellow PM Shrinivasan Srinivasan Sundararajan, or Srini, as he's better known to some of us. From helping to address myriad problem domains across different departments, in addition to his discipline of mechanical engineering while at IIT Madras, to joining a manufacturing company developing software and key lessons he learned there while developing backup software. He contrasts his experiences working at startups with working at large corporates, and his examination of data adds a very different nuance to the conversation. Srini shares his view of what risk-taking means based on something he experienced very early on in his career. He dwells on paradoxes and planning, and his transition to being a coach, and then some messages for all of us. Listen on. Good morning, Srini. Welcome to the Software People Stories podcast. This is an episode waiting for quite some time in the pipeline. It's wonderful to have a fellow PM in as a guest. Very warm welcome to you to our show.
1: Thank you, Chitra. It's been long overdue. I appreciate the fact that we are able to catch up today.
0: So we start usually by first asking our guests to introduce themselves. How would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Uh, yeah, I have been listening to a lot of uh, podcasts from the software people's stories. So Let me try to give a little different way in which I look at myself. To me, I think I would consider myself to be a product of circumstances, right? Uh, The events shaped my journey. But having said that, I think I am also a big believer in planning. And uh, this is something when you look at many things in life for me, it's probably you will see me as a person of a paradox. You will probably see me as a paradox. This, but exactly the opposite of that also. That's how I would define myself.
0: So that's definitely a question for me coming up shortly. The planning versus the paradox, I guess, depending on which situation you are in. So where did the journey of you entering the software industry or the tech industry begin? It's a
1: very interesting way I even got to know what a computer was, right? Uh, This happened when I first got into IIT, right? And uh, then I got to understand with the first, less of first uh, subject or introduction to programming using Fortran four. Anybody had heard of it. It was a very powerful language those days used in the scientific community. From there, I got fascinated by using a for with using a computer. Very quickly, I got an opportunity to sign up as a teaching assistant to a leading prof in the computer science department. Though I was not a computer science student incidentally, I did that, and that led me to actually further solidify it by starting to work with a couple of profs in the campus who had assignments who were doing research and would use students to help them out. So I did an analysis for what is called the Aftend motor for a rocket motor. Uh, this was a project for ISRO that IIT Metras prof in Aero was doing. I helped him out in that with an analysis. Similarly, another prof in the materials department was actually looking at analyzing the uh, material that was used on a satellite. Right, some stress analysis. I helped that prop out. My final semester project, even though I was a mechanical engineering student, happened to significantly make use of computers. And coincidentally, my campus interview led me to get me a computing job. And this is what led me to get into this wonderful field.
0: Thank you, Srini. You seem to have had some sort of a pioneering experience when you talk about Fortran 4, the IBM 370, starting out as a teaching assistant, and working across departments with different problems. Very, very different and very unique, I think, compared to a lot of us who probably stepped into this industry much, much later. What did you do after you finished your graduation from IIT?
1: I got a job with a manufacturing company and the offer was in the computing department. It was a very progressive company in that era. I walked into the company and they asked me, the person who interviewed actually had the role for me as well. He asked me, would you like to work on Unix? And as a kid from college, it was a dream. I said, of course. I actually got into working on to an online system then in 1984, which was being deployed in the manufacturing plant to be used by actually people like the storekeepers and the people who have foremen and things like that. That was how it further expanded, right so but of course, at that point, I didn't even realize I was going to be in the industry. We were about five thousand people in the country who used to be in this business. I thought I'm going to stay at techie all my life, which is what I had some sort of an idea, but it turned out to be very different as time progressed.
0: What were some of the lessons that you took away from working in that manufacturing company?
1: very interesting lesson, right I sure, I can never forget this we uh, Unix, uh, for those of them who are familiar with Unix, they know there's some uh, uh, there's one, uh, utility called TAR uh, with which you can do backups because we had deployed all these uh, decentralized machines in the store and we didn't have a tape, right? It could be used on a floppy disk and you could actually back it up. What we realized is on the Unix keyboard, all we had to do was the storekeeper accidentally press the enter key three times and the backup on the floppy drive would happen on the same floppy drive three times. It means it overwrites. Uh, because it was not really a tape, So we knew that this is going to kill backups. We said, okay, we have to create a foolproof system so that even a storekeeper can use. That was our benchmark. We actually created our own backup utility so that floppies were formatted our own way. People could not change it. Generations could not be switched. Everything designed beautifully. And we tested rugged, it was. And then we took it to the f- people in the field, told them how this works and explained to them the importance of backup and instilled in them that if you don't do your backups, it's too old, then you may have to repeat keying in all the data for the last whatever period that you have not done. So put a fear of God in them and got them in. Worked fine. Then one day I got a call from one of the people in the plant and said, hey, it's having a problem. There's a power cut, right? And this was not uncommon in that era. He said, okay, restore the backup. Uh, He said, "Uh, yeah, we restored the, try to, a restore was also created by us. He said, it doesn't work. Then try the other one. He said, okay, then I went actually to the power plant, to the actual plant, tried to do it, took up their backups prior generation, tried everything right? Everything I restored, the whole thing was corrupted. Right? I was wondering, how is it possible everything had a corruption? Then I turned down to the guys and asked them, hey, what did you guys do? He said, sir, you had told us very clearly how important backup is. I said, yeah. So what they did was every time there was a power failure, immediately after that, they put the backup system to back it up. And they had already got a corrupt system. And they backed up, they thinking that they will salvage whatever is left. And they repeated it a few times, every power failure. And everything got backed up with corrupt database, and we had no earlier generation left behind. That's when I realized how important communication is a very big lesson. The best systems cannot beat simple communications.
0: What a takeaway. Very nice story, Srini. This is uh, certainly one that's going to stay with me for a long time. What did you do after your experience with the manufacturing company? Where did you take the next step of your journey?
1: couple of years uh, in that place and then soon I realized uh, that hey if I want to build myself uh, I thought uh, maybe a company where software development was a primary job would be a necessity like all kids those days aspirations. went on to join a financial institutions uh, software division uh, 100% EOU those days in Mumbai. Did that and then had an opportunity to switch down to Bangalore, right? And the uh, personal reasons, I decided to move back to Bangalore. I actually had my early days in Bangalore. So I came back to Bangalore. Half a dozen years with another financial services software company. Then a brief stint in a company, unfortunately, I had interviewed for a, a startup company and uh, nothing happened. So I decided to join this company. And right after I joined, the startup company wanted me back. So I was all delighted to go and join the startup was, along with the expat who came from the US, uh, was the first employee of the company. We built the company up, we ran it, went through a very nice experience of that, and then moved to another startup this time. Uh, this was for a US-West Coast-based company to set up their Indian operations, ran it up, crash landed. The people to whom I sold a dream to join my company, I actually had to place them out. I did that, right? A big learn from the shutdown then. Then I said, maybe it's time after two startups to go back to an established company, Went to a large multinational corporation, worked close to about 15 years. And then I said, uh, enough of uh, my corporate life. Uh, After 30 years of corporate life, uh, I said it's time to bid audios to the corporate world and uh, decided to join PM Power Consulting, where I'm an independent now and an individual contributor with no management responsibilities. And I'm enjoying life being a coach.
0: Lots of toggles and flip-flops between working with startups and Going into an established company, how would you narrate your experience between being in a startup where the ability to respond is the need of the hour, given that things are changing so rapidly, versus working in a larger, more established company where things are perhaps a little more planned?
1: I want to share a different illustration which sort of brings out the culture in a startup, how you can rally around people very differently as compared to a large corporation. So what happened here was uh, we were a small company and uh, we were a services company. So our cash flow was directly proportional to the fact that we did billing on time. And many, anybody in the service industry will understand that, right? If you do your billing, it goes back, it gets approved. And only after that, you have your T plus N days before which cash payments will come back. We sort of, at one stage, were having cash, which was very tight. The CFO, myself, the CTO then, and one more person, the COO, three of us got up and said, hey, how do we let everybody know the importance of doing it? Because people were doing timesheets, but people were not necessarily doing it on time. Things were not going. We caught up with the managers and we actually devised a system where we told the teams, look, if your timesheets come on time and we had a system by which we were contributing back to the employees' welfare, we said that will be a function of the fact that this timesheet that comes out on the between the first and the second working day of every month following the month which closed. Believe it or not, in less than two months, the company employees, everybody understood the importance of this. And we actually had timesheets getting filled up on the very last day. And by the first day, it was like 70 to 80% done and the remaining by the second day morning. We never had to follow through. And this was because people understood the fact that, hey, why it is important to my company. And they also realized what is in it for them right, however small that money that was there for. This is what startup cultures are all about, right? You can make instant decisions, you can work with people, and you can respond and change. Fast forward to a large organization where I actually had an opportunity, and it so happened at one stage, this became an important topic. Incidentally, it was time sheets, even in that corporation. And I was in charge, so to speak, trying to help transform. People wouldn't worry too much, right? People didn't have a sense of ability to respond nor could you actually change the system to be able to tweak and manage people's behavior. Right it took me a long while to figure out what I had to do in a large corporate to make a change. I actually had to go back and tell people because from a monthly billing they wanted to go to a daily billing. How their data's non-qualitative part of it is hurting us. And when it they figured out that it's going to impact the number of working hours they have because we are generating information that is not appropriate. That is when we could move the needle. But even then, it was a little tougher, very tough. That's how I would say is the big difference between a startup where you can be nimble and in a large corporate where people take things for granted, right? Oh, I'm just one guy. If I didn't do it, it's a boring thing. Things will work out.
0: Nice lesson, Srini, and a very nice analogy. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will find it really useful. I know you as someone who loves to look at data, who loves the challenge, especially in terms of a risk analysis, what is it that you would like to share or impart from your insights of being able to look into data, look around it and beyond it?
1: As Edward Deming said, something that can't be measured will not get done, right? People don't see a value of doing it. Data in some senses is very fundamental to anything we do to even try and be objective in our decision-making process right? How did this happen? Maybe a fascination for numbers, maybe a fascination for a few things early on led me to it. I myself can't put a finger and say, hey, this is what led me to looking at numbers. But somehow the love for numbers, and maybe it is a logical thinking I'm thinking of in my campus days, which probably sharpened it up a little more to look at numbers. So looking at numbers to be able to make decision is something that I think is very important because it's a little more objective. But what I realized over time is also that decision-making is not just the numbers that you can see it. Many of the numbers are after the fact. How do you make sense of things which are happening prior to that? And that is an interesting aspect. So does anybody who's looking at data should understand that it is not after the fact data. It is about your ability to sense before the fact what happens. So let me share an interesting experience that I had with a CFO of ours right uh, this was in a large corporate and uh, I was looking after a particular center so we used to have a weekly meetings and uh, the CFO said hey guys the coffee consumption is going up and uh, after the meeting was over right all of us who were running various units we came out and said typical CFO speak he wants to probably cut costs right the guy is telling us about coffee so we sort of just ignored what he said took it in a light-hearted spirit and went away next week He comes back in all seriousness, comes back and tells us the same thing. Look guys, coffee consumption is going up and I'm continuing to keep getting calls from your employees that coffee is not being served on time in the cafeteria. So he said, go back. And he said, look, I think there's a problem with your utilization. Wow. It sounded very interesting. So we actually then decided, some of us decided, okay, let's go back. He seems to be very serious and went down to drill. And believe it or not, what he said was true. Because sometimes in large corporates, right, People update systems a little late. End of month is when you look at your billing information. And what you didn't realize is there was some drop-off in our business. And our utilization had dropped by a few percentage point. And that actually meant some of these people had more free time. And in order to spend their time, they would go promptly on time to the chai place to have chai, and chai was not there. The CFO was also the chief administrative officer. They would escalate to him saying chai is not as per plan. So data, yes, matters but making sense of it is also equally important. That's what I have learned today. That's one part of your question. Uh, do you want me to meet answer on the risk part or do you have any questions on this?
0: That's a fabulous analogy by itself. And yes, if you can shed light on looking at risk elements and risk factors and assessing it, I think that'll be great.
1: Okay. To a lot of people, right, risk is something that is very hard to fathom and even appreciate, right? Right. Uh, And I also, I mean, you probably know that, right? I also help people with their personal financial planning, right? More as a hobby. And one of the very first things I try to help people appreciate is what is their risk appetite? And what is the level of risk that they can afford to take? And what is the level of risk they may have to take if they have to meet the goals? Now, it is this combination of things that people need to appreciate even in financial planning, right? I want to go back in my own career, where I learned the impact of risk the very hard way. It's a very interesting experience of mine. I actually worked for a great company at that point of time. I was working on a particular project. It was coming to an end, and uh, the managing director of my company called me up and said, Sheeny, hey, you worked on IBM mainframes earlier, and uh, there is this wonderful opportunity for us to actually take over the retail banking system for our parent company. Potentially it means we could run a team of 130 to 150 people. And he said, are you willing to take it up? Hey, I'm an young an guy. And in that era where my current organization size itself was not that big, my managing director coming back and giving me an opportunity to run a team of 130 to 150. Wow. And what, I had what about seven years or eight years of experience. And when I looked at what was happening in the market, it was way beyond my dreams. A little trepidation. My managing director saw that in me and he said, Sreeni, don't worry. Take it up. Something goes wrong. I'm here to back you up. I said, okay, go ahead. I'll do it. A couple of days later, he sounded out the parent company to say we're ready. He has a leader to take it up. And soon we got our first message saying, hey, everybody who comes on board this group will have to start as a boot camper, and which is nothing but actually a, like a fresh recruit campus training type. Okay, I had already corralled up a small team, the core team of five of us. Uh, I said, look, uh, I'll go ahead. I was like excited that this will mean that pretty much I will be in the big league because uh, none at that time, if I remember right, some of the people who reached the top levels of TCS today were probably managing teams of that size. So something like that was an opportunity standing in front of me at that era, right? I said, wow, yes. I took the team there. I was confident that we'll pull it off, right, with my team. Uh, boot camper for three months. All of us went in. They said, you have to start as a, f- for a first-time programmer. Three months later, they said, hey, you're a great programmer. You can do a little more. Every quarter, I kept moving up the ranks in their judgment, right? I used to actually manage a team of about 40 people before I actually took up this slot. In about 20-odd months, right, I had actually reached the point where they were comfortable that I was good enough for what I was doing. And the parent company made a big strategic call to change the direction. They said they're not going to move the system to India. And either I could continue there or decide to move on. I joined this and went through all this grind only for the simple dream I was chasing to go and run back a team of 130 to 150 people. I said no. I sort of logically wound it up and came back to India. My team members wanted to persist in that country. So I let them stay on. I moved back and the managing director had changed. The new managing director said, I told him, look, this is what I've done. I sort of have to come back because some of my peers then had moved up. I said, you have to give me a break. He said, bad luck, Srini, if it didn't work out. Can you imagine? I was absolutely annoyed. I took the decision to go there because my managing director backed me up saying, if something goes wrong, I will support you. And a new managing director comes and says, bad luck. I was absolutely petrified with him. I said, he has deceived. I said, look, I spoke to the person in the chair. I don't care who you are. I literally very much told him close to that. I came out and I obviously continued in that place for another year and I finally left. And time I thought of this new managing director, my blood used to fume. Now, I not coming back to the story. Only later I realized that I did not look at the risk element when I took the decision. I saw the opportunity in front of me to run a large organization to become a big man. A little did I realize, what if this managing director went away? What if they canceled this idea? Where will I land up? I think it was a youth in me then that made me look at the bright side of it without looking at the risk. And this experience made me very wise. The probability of risk sometimes is very marginal, but sometimes the impact can be significant. And that's how I learned. And I think over time, I have looked at it in various opportunities today. So helping people to decipher between the probability, the risk, and the value of taking the risk right? Helping people to appreciate it and people to make decisions, right? So I was a decider. So risk-making means that you have the ability to make a decision. And if you ever make a decision in life, you need to understand you have taken a risk. That's what I would share with any listener on this podcast.
0: Very good lesson, Srini. In fact, as you were speaking, it also took me back in time to Perhaps several similar incidents and I certainly took something away from this. So thank you so much for sharing it. This now goes back to what you said right at the beginning. You said you're a firm believer in planning and yet you perhaps experience or see the paradoxes that happen in spite of or despite planning. You want to talk a bit about that? Some of them actually happen because of circumstances, events in life,
1: and some are caused by us. Let me When I say I am a product of circumstances, whether getting into IIT for that matter, a place I didn't even know till what it was, till I was in 10th standard, right? It's just because my dad happened to meet a cousin of his and got to know the next year I tried and I got in after 11th, right? Product of circumstance, right? Could have happened any other way for that matter in life. When I was finishing my graduation at IIT Madras, right? I was thinking that I want to be a designer and... uh, Automobile company was my fascination, where I would just go ahead and design. I actually landed up in a manufacturing company, but went on to the software division and life took into a different path altogether. So every time I think I have planned something, I am willing to change. I planned for something. I planned to become, I didn't even plan to become an engineer. I was probably going to become a chartered accountant. But when this opportunity opened up because of the fact somebody said it's good, I became an engineer. When I become a mechanical engineer, I thought I will go to automobile design. Somewhere, I got an opportunity to go and do software as a business. I took that up. I thought it was boutique and I'm going to be a techie in my life. Little did I realize that I was going to become a manager. And one thing led to another. Having grown up in large companies, suddenly I got an opportunity to get into a startup because of an idea that I gave them in how to hire people. And that fascinated them about my philosophy. And I got an opportunity to go to a startup. I enjoyed that. But then the shutdown there, Transform me and I said, look, I help people to bail out and I bailed myself out. But then I said, let me go back to a large company so that I have stability. Several years in that company with multiple changes and rules and I changed again. I'm now an individual contributor and I enjoy that. So every time I think I have planned something to go in the next step, if something else is my calling or if an opportunity or an event has changed it and I'm willing to adapt. And that is how I think most of us would have to look at our career, in my opinion.
0: A series of continuous transitions or S-curves, as a lot of us refer to at PM Power, which also brings me to my next question. You know, when you talked about change and the ability to adapt, it's perhaps something that we as coaches are continuously imbibing and helping others also to imbibe. It's in some ways reflective of, you know, the ability to adapt to any circumstances around what has your transition been like from somebody who very early on got the opportunity to create, lead and manage large teams to moving to being an agile coach, teaching people about agility? What has the transition been like for you?
1: Actually, that's a very fascinating question. It, I have realized that to learn something about what you've done. Like if you're asking me this question after a five year journey, so I probably have some insight today. If you had asked me this question in the first year, I would have been fumbling for giving you a reasonable answer. Let me come back. Many of us say, hey, as a manager, you are a coach too. And then so if, if that is the case, what is the difference between being a manager as a coach and somebody like me today, who is outside of the box and being a coach? As a person who likes to study people's behavior, which is a hobby of mine, I have seen very interesting things about myself and what I observe about others. When I was a manager, I had the same dream and intent to help my team members and in some senses coach them, mentor them and did things. But the one thing that had something more than that was the fact that I also had some targets, some goals I had to meet, which means any of my reportees, when they worked with me, in some senses, I also knew that they had to help fulfill this goal. So sometimes when it takes a little long for them, the how would transcend quickly. And you want to help them take the shortcut and say, hey, this is how to do it. You can reach there, make it happen. And they also liked it. They also did it. But inherent in that is the fact that you are continuing to create a dependency on you in some form or shape. You're helpful to people, but you're also actually creating dependency. And it might even be the position of a manager too, I feel. As a manager, that is what you probably are happy with. Now having stepped out and as an independent coach with no baggage and no need to be in the rat race, hey, today I'm a manager, tomorrow senior manager, a general manager, a vice president, senior vice president. I don't have any of those things. Today when I look at people, I'm able to look at you as a person first with your own aspirations, with your own dreams, and potentially with your own weaknesses. And then still be able to have this dialogue with you. And I generally find people are more open to coming back and sharing their weakness. And then helping them to ask the question about how do you handle this? And same thing with the strength, because uh, one of my philosophy has been your strength is your biggest weakness. How do I help people to understand themselves and see what they want to do? And I don't carry a baggage and people are being more transparent to me i'll share with you an example of a person in my coaching right he said hey guess what i'm lazy enough to do this part of the work i don't think he would go and tell that to his manager but that helped him to actually come out and figure out what he wanted to accomplish out of that i had an ability to coach another person who was changing her role she came back and as we went through it she realized she had grown in a particular way by being very clear about how she's going to accomplish things. And now she realized that could be her failure if she's going to impose that on her team members. So this was actually a person trying to become a manager, trying to coach this person early on. I think that is the difference. But she couldn't go and have the dialogue with her own manager as to how she feels vulnerable about it. So I think that is the difference I have seen. And personally for me, it has been the biggest challenge has been unlearning and being willing to leave people the time to make the change and allowing them to go at their own pace, which I think as a manager, I probably would not have done. Or rather, I would say I wouldn't have
0: done. It's a very nice collection of lessons, Srini. I'm sure a lot of our listeners who are at various transition points in life or are thinking of different roles, responsibilities, will certainly benefit from it. As we come to I what I'd like to call just the first part of many more conversations to come. Are there any lessons or experiences or insight that you would like to leave our listeners with?
1: To leave anybody with an input means I have transcended beyond that point. I myself am in a journey. So all I can do is share my experiences, share some of my failures, some of my successes. And the only thing I would leave listeners with is, you will have your own journey, share them. Some you will succeed, some you will fail. Remember one thing. Ultimately, you are the decision maker. Many times we forget the fact that we are the decision makers of some important things that happened in our life. And that means the risk was directly owned by us. That is one thing I would like. The second thing I would tell people is very often it is your strength, when it crosses a threshold, can actually be your weakness. So be aware of it and go ahead with your journey. I mean, each of us are just to make some things happen. And enjoy it. I am nobody here who can tell you what to take away from this. I think it is for you to tell me if you found something useful or even want to have a chat and share experiences. I'm open to it. That's what I would tell the the, 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 listeners.
0: Thank you, Srini. And like I said, I think this is the first of many more conversations to come, either about stories, experiences or insights, or who knows, perhaps something else. And like you said, we're all on each of our journeys. So thank you very much for your time. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you, Chitran. Thank you for having me today.
0: Thank you. We thank Siddharth for the music and Malavika for promoting the Software People Stories. If you like this episode, Please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story,
1: contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.